This is the After Party, live with Kim McAllister and John Daly. It is. Ooh, yeah, baby. Hello, Kim. Mm-hmm. Come on in. Grab some espresso, or in your case, mint tea. Maybe some Moroccan mint tea. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, it feels like a, it does feel like a party in here. It feels like the office cocktail party. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A little winter mm-hmm. cafe. A little casual, you, you know. the heaters on. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy. I love you. You're the best. You know, you really create this welcoming environment for me. I slide right in from the Mark Thompson show into Partyville, and we are ready to roll here yeah, on the After kind of, Party Live. It's, oop. Yeah, We're that's all right. We'll take it again. again. One more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds yes, me of that the party. $5. Oh. Wes, thank yes. you so thank much. Thank you, Wes. It reminds me of that, um, that, uh, Scandinavian concept of coziness, hig, hig, yeah, like bring everything together. It's warm and cozy. You got your candles, all your comfort <laughs> foods. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, oh, such good chats already. Thank you guys for being here in the chat. Thanks for spending time with us. If you could click the like button here on the After Party Live, we appreciate it. If you're here and you like haven't us. subscribed, please like us. Please subscribe to us. We love you. We want to keep doing this. It's super fun. Um, and also, you'll find our, um, if you're so moved, this as you see Wes with a $5 super sticker. Again, yes. thank, thank you. Thank you, Wes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, also, we have a PayPal address and you'll find that in the show description. So thank you for any way you can help us. And we are ready to get this party started. We have some animal stories for you today. Yeah, but first I threw in, um, well, we want to make, um, we want to thank and acknowledge the Dodge guy for a $5 super oh. thanks in after hours trading yesterday. And he says it's for bird seed. <laughs> Because of Mockingbird. Mockingbird makes a return today on Travel Tuesday. So you thank know. you, Dodge Guy. I appreciate it. Every <laughs> amount of bird seed helps. Super Especially cool. During the holidays. By the way, if you want to send us any messages, you can always do that. We are very accessible. You'll find John at John at the afterparty.live. I'm Kim at the afterparty.live. So please send uh, send those messages away. Let's uh, but talk- I put this first story in here for you. This is a, I, I was funny that you say, put this in here because I clicked on it last night and I was reading it. Bay Area Costco's have this item that everybody seems to want and they wait 12 years sometimes to get it. Yeah. And it doesn't it, seem to be every Costco. Like it depends on the Costco and well, some of the some Costco's of them, have more. Some of them sell out. Some of them don't carry it. You know, yeah. some of them there, you can't find it there. Some have is some it, in stock. Is it bars of gold? It is not. You would think it was the bars of gold. It's actually a Cabernet Sauvignon from Screaming Eagle Winery. Have you this heard of them? A, I have heard of them, but I've never had their wine. Mm-hmm. It's apparently a winery known among wa- big wine enthusiast types for its limited 500 case production per year. That's why wow. it's so sought after. Yeah. You can wait up to 12 years to get a bottle of this stuff by joining online wait lists. People pay more than $3,600 a bottle on average for this cab. Whoa. So, I mean, even if, good. even if they had it at my local Costco, I'm not buying it. Does it, it come it's, with a bar of gold? <laughs> it should come with a bar of gold. Um. 
it must be highly rated then say you're more likely to get a hold of it if you're a costco member but even that is limited because there's only a few bay area costco stores that actually have it right right now they are newark redwood city foster city santa clara danville nevada and san jose they have a very limited amount amount Mm. of stock like some of them only have one bottle in stock your affluent costco's so with, could I roll down to Novato and look for it? Yes. Would I actually be afford to walk, uh, be able to afford to walk out of the Costco with it? No, no, I couldn't. You have to no. put it on that Costco credit card. No, two percent back. No, no, no. Screaming Eagle, though, apparently a, a quite a big deal. So that's kind of an interesting development. Um, but we have this story which I found. You found the story, John Daly, and I found it so fascinating. Scientists say. Now, take this with a grain of salt, that they have had a 20-minute long conversation with a humpback whale named Ocean Twain. Salt. Twain. Big, 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 big uh, grain of ocean salt. Big grain of ocean salt. They, <laughs> they think or their hope that having a 20-minute conversation with this whale will pave the way for conversations with aliens someday, which is funny because I was just talking about aliens moments ago. Um, but the... The thought is if we can communicate with a creature, a completely different creature, then this might help us in communications with aliens. But listen to this. This is how they communicated. So I want to tell you that it's not like they read the whale's thoughts and it said, gosh, I really have an itch or I wish you could help me remove these uh, parasites from my back. No, it's not that kind of a conversation. Basically, the researchers um, from SETI, the search for extraterrestrial, mm-hmm. right? They studied how whales communicate in the hopes of developing intelligence filters as part of the search for alien life. So what they did was they broadcast a type of greeting called a whoop throb underwater speakers. Mm-hmm. When the call was played through the water, this humpback whale, Twain, approached the boat and responded with a greeting call of her own. So the scientists thought that Twain was changing the frequency of her own calls in response to the researchers broadcast. Do we know what Twain was saying? No, no, we don't. Were we somehow communicating with Twain with Twain? Kind of because we know what whale sounds are like. So we broadcast the whale sounds and then Maybe we got, she was changing the frequency because she doesn't care about sports betting. What's the frequency, Philip? Um, do you want to hear it? Let's hear it. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. So researchers from UC Davis say this is the first communicative exchange between humans and humpbacks, whales in the humpback language. They say this whale, because it was mirroring the behavior, they show the whale was engaging in a type of interactive conversation with that recorded call. They say Twain was motivated to reply by excitement and possibly the onset of agitation, but it was communicative language. So do we have a long way to go to understanding what Twain was trying to say or why Twain what was even responding? What the hell are you doing up yeah. there? Why are you making I my noises? I don't want to eat plastic. <laughs> exactly. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad you don't have a whale setting on your microphone. I'll have to, uh, maybe I can make one. Mm. 
Mm. Mm. <laughs> I have to work on that. Um, but it's interesting uh, that the whale did respond to us. So we'll go with that. We'll go with it's the first conversation, 20-minute long conversation between human and whale. Yeah. You yeah. know who's easier to communicate with? That would be Flacco. You remember Flacco, the famous Flacco. New York City owl? I love <laughs> Flacco. He's back? Now, the headline, <laughs> the headline <laughs> you're going to love this, is that Flacco, the famous New York City owl, has become a peeping Tom. No, Flacco. Oh, Flacco. So cute. Uh, one recent morning, uh, Riley Richardson woke up to being watched. She jumped out of bed, went to the window of her Manhattan apartment, and fell to the floor when she saw the peeper. It absolutely scared the you-know-what out of me, she recalls. Because Flacco's two feet tall, right? There's an owl staring back at her. It's New York City. This is the last thing you expect to see. <laughs> uh, she's an actor, 31 years old. Didn't know it then. Uh, but her feathered visitor was Flacco, the orange-eyed Eurasian eagle owl who became a New York celebrity after he escaped from the zoo in Feb February. February. Uh, and turned leafy Central Park into his home. He's drawn binocular toting crowds who couldn't help but root for the creature like them trying to make it in the big city. Uh, over time, though, Flacco's behavior has shifted. He's become a true, uh, true nosy New Yorker, a bit of a hoot, and a real owl about town. We have, we have quite a few pictures. Look at him there. hanging out in the air conditioning yeah. unit. Yeah. Uh, Flacco is a gawker, flying out of Central Park and around Manhattan, sometimes standing outside windows with his beak to the glass and his large eyes peering. Uh, we have, this is a group of people looking for Flacco. Uh, check that out. Here he is on an air conditioner. I guess Flacco can live in the in <laughs> snow and cold freezing temperatures and it's yeah. okay. All right. Yeah, he's okay. He's uh, Eurasian. He's like, ah, I'm just looking for a mate. Um, Flacco may be taken to peeping Tom behavior because he sees humans as potential mates. Oh. <laughs> it's hard to know what he's thinking. He's not afraid of humans because he was raised by them. He was born in 2010 in uh, North Carolina bird sanctuary, thousands of miles away from the wooded regions of Europe and Asia where other Eurasian eagle owls live in the world. And he made his debut at the Central Park Zoo in his first year of life. So we have a few more pictures. But oh, look at this guy. I guess people have had some face-to-face -face encounters with Flacco. One guy says he got within six inches of, of or one woman got within six inches of his face. And he they say he let out this tiny hiss as Ooh. if Flacco was saying, okay, I like you, but I don't want to be beak to beak with you. Yeah. 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 So and, and I looked at a map of all the sightings and he's been all over Manhattan from top to bottom. I feel uh, bad for Flacco. I feel like he's alone in the world. Yeah, he's just trying to make it in the big world. Yeah. You know, and rent prices, you know. He can't afford, <laughs> he can't afford a can't afford even a junior studio in Manhattan. No. Um the for the first time in seven years, a baby elephant. African oh, elephant was born elephant. at Disney's Animal Kingdom. And I have mixed feelings about this because, first of all, oh my God, ele baby elephants, uh, the best. And if you grow up in a sanctuary like this, or I don't know, zoo, <clears throat> then you're safe and protected. You, you, poachers can't get you. And we preserve the species, you know, that uh, there are more of these little souls that can't go extinct. Yeah. But also, they're in a zoo, people to gawk at. And I I want, in a perfect world, for them to be free. Right. But this baby elephant was born at Walt Disney World. It's named Cora. She is the first African elephant calf to be born at Disney's Animal Kingdom in seven years. And it's exciting. Everyone's excited about this. Um, the 
her mom, Nadira, was also born at the animal, animal Kingdom eight years ago, making Cora not only her first baby, but the first second-generation calf born at that theme park. The pregnancy yeah. was 22 months long. Way to go, Nadira. Oh. Um, uh, but it is a big area. So at least, you know, it's a well-funded company and it looks like they're keeping him outdoors. So it might just be safer for him. I mean, they're, they're not going to send him to Africa or wherever their their people are from, right? So I, no, I'd rather they be not. in a, a big, open, expanse-funded, you know, by a company who has has the cheese, you know, to, to, to pay for their food and take care has of them cheese. properly and not, and, and not, you know, not, you know, put them in a crate you know, the, you know, the equivalent of it, like a yeah. cage, right? Yeah. yeah, it's true. No traveling oh. circus. No. So there you go. There's little Cora and she's cute. Very cute. Yeah. Um, this next story is kind of, I put it through this in here because it's kind of random. Um, this is a Catskill animal sanctuary. They're hosting caroling with cows. No. You go sing to the cows and the cows yeah. like move back at you. Yeah. Uh, during a cozy afternoon of carols, cocoa, cookies, and cows at the Catskill Animal Sanctuary uh, Saturday, visitors had fun singing classic holiday songs that were rewritten for a festive celebration of the season of beloved rescued animals. A songbook was distributed that included, included Joy to the Herd, okay, Have Yourself a Merry, Little Cowsmas, Pig Song, sung to the tune of Oh Christmas Tree, Carol of the Cows and Turkeys, Don't Be Late to the tune of Alvin and the Chipmunks, and I have, I have some other photos. I thought you'd appreciate these. Check them out. There we go. Cute. Yeah. Yeah. So these uh, animals were serenaded. Happy holidays at really the farm. Could. Look at yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if they like the Christmas songs, but, you know, I'm sure they appreciate the, the snacks. They like right? the snacks. Yeah, the absolutely. Others. Right. I thought that was cute. Um, can I read this from PT who says something really funny about Flacco? Instead of being in the zoo where humans can look in at Flacco, Flacco now lives in the city where he can look in at the humans. I thought That's that was true. kind of funny. Yeah. That's well true. done, PT. Well done. Oops, sorry. Uh, okay. Um, let's talk about this near extinct animal spotted for the first time in a hundred years. And there's been a lot more activity in this area since then as well. Pretty exciting development. Uh, what we know is that for the first time in a hundred years, more than a hundred years, actually a gray wolf has been spotted in the giant Sequoia national monument area in Southern California. This is, I mean, we thought they were gone, right? This right. woman who saw the wolf in early July believes uh, she describes a big gray canine who crossed a fire road in the area, then tilted its head back and let out a really big howl. She told the LA Times, all I could think was, it doesn't look like a coyote, but it has to be, right? Right, yeah. Well, they went back, apparently, they being animal specialists, and they looked at the tracks, they looked at the hair, they looked at scat left behind and it proved that this animal was a female gray wolf the leader of what is called the tulari pack and she had four offspring apparently two male two female the dna analysis showing their direct descendants of or7 who was in 2011 the first wolf in california in 90 that or7 years. gets around 
OR7 does. OR7 lingers. Environmentalists very excited about the reappearance of wolves in the area. They're urging the U.S. Forest Service to stop any logging projects in this region until the endangered wolves can be assessed. Some people, like those that work for logging companies or own them, are resistant to put those projects on pause. Livestock owners in the area worry that their animals could be food for the wolves, so not everyone is glad to see them come back you know um but it's so interesting to be here in california and see their reemergence very cool yeah. um someone who's been around almost as long as that uh that period of time you said 100 years right yeah well this woman's been around 90 years and she just oh. earned her master's degree in yay. texas yay i love yeah, that you're never a too old to learn, right? A 90-year-old woman became the eldest University of North Texas student to complete her coursework when she earned the master's degree in interdisciplinary studies. Minnie Payne told UNT officials she attended junior college for only a short time after graduating high school in 1950, but decided to return to her education after retiring from her 30-year career as a transcriptionist and word processor at the age of 68. She attended uh, Texas uh, Women's University, taking three journalism classes, there you go, Kim, and a business class at the UNT campus. I had always worked with words, and I'd always liked to write, so I almost immediately went back to school. I wanted to improve myself, um, she said during the commencement. Uh, Payne graduated with a bachelor's in general studies in 2006 and worked as a freelance writer on multiple publications across Texas. She moved to College Station to be closer to family, returned to the university to pursue a master's of journalism, but changed to interdisciplinary studies when some of her online classes switched to in-person. That's still, that's very, very, uh, that's very, very impressive. Um, talk about a lifelong learner. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Do you think, though, this, I don't know, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful that you should never stop. But do you think that toward the end of her life, she's taking a spot away from someone who could use that spot and then could go on to have a big Jesus, career. Kim, you're officially a Debbie Downer of this week. I'm sorry. <clears throat> so unparty-like of me. Well, she freed up a spot for 50 years. <laughs> there she goes. All right, let's talk about the UN. You've heard of these UNESCO sites, yeah. Right. That you go around and there are this, these historical sites that are a really big deal that, you know, you those are the sites. That, oh, I've got to go see that. It's, a right. you know, one of the wonders of the world kind of sites. Well, now I guess there's U.N. intangible cultural heritage. Uh, there's a list of those things as well. So Italian opera singing is now protected by the United Nations. Wait, along wait, wait. with. 50 other practices from around the world to its intangible cultural heritage list. Including trying to kill Harry Potter? Apparently, yes. <laughs> yes. UNESCO um, is the cultural arm of the United Nations. They have right. this list they created in 2008. And the whole point of it is to safeguard traditions, festivals, rites of passage, art forms, and other practices that people do around the world. Um, and that's important, right? And so they're recognizing culturally, historically significant buildings, structures, and now also uh, cultural heritage. And that is a bit of a broader definition. It's no longer a matter of just monuments, sites, or stones. It's also alive. It can be sung, 
this history and culture written, listened to, touch, and each of us, they say, carries a part of this heritage in us and protects it. So here is what they are. Um, they're protecting opera music. Uh, because it's performed by people of all genders. It's associated with specific facial expressions, body gestures. It involves music, drama, acting, staging. And they say it dates back to Florence, Italy in the late 16th and early 17th century. So they think it's worth protecting. The opera singing, they say, is a world excellence. So that's uh, that's important. But yeah, there's a bunch of things they're protecting. And I just thought that was interesting that it's not only buildings, it's also the things that make us who we are. Yeah, Jim asked cultural heritage lists like American bowling. <laughs> I am being snide because Italian opera singing is not exactly rare or fading away. No, it isn't. But it won't now that it's UNESCO protected, Jim. Yeah, John wants mm -hmm. to know protected from what? Uh, ever slinking back into the dark shadows of history, apparently. Lori wants to know cultural appropriation, please. No, I maybe, maybe they are. Maybe they're saying this is an Italian. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so protect our music videos. Got it. I don't know. Thank you, Calvin. I mean, so I would say hula, right? Certain languages that are spoken should be protected. Um, certain dances maybe what Spell would we want to what would we protect in america what would be our thing that we would want to protect that we do Gun, uh, i was gonna say guns guns yeah <laughs> guns shooting target practice yeah Hunt, i don't know hunting. i don't know what we want to protect i mean maybe broadway theater on broadway i i just think it's unnecessary i don't know, I don't know. to preserve culture i think you're not actually preserving it, though. You're just putting it on a list. A list of things that are protected, right? What does that mean? Not You're going to exactly. hire people with guns to make sure that... Keep dancing! <laughs> Keep dancing! <laughs> Teach your kids to dance! I mean, I think that's kind of built into people yeah. just sharing it and teaching it. So yeah. um, I can't get past this. looks like, you know, he who shall not be named. It's very Harry Potter. I'm going to take that off the screen. It's very disturbing. That's funny. <laughs> um, um, yeah, let's talk about coffee. I have the... The um, Coachella Valley tea in here, but this is coffee. Yeah, I um, had my coffee earlier. Uh, you could be soon be, uh, drinking lab-grown coffee without knowing the dis the difference. This is coming out of Finland. Coffee, a beloved uh, beverage worldwide, is facing a crisis. Climate change uh, is threatening global coffee production with predictions of a significant decrease in output over the next 30 years. Traditional coffee farming is not only susceptible to weather changes, but also contributes significantly to carbon emissions. The solution, cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture, it's not using your phone. It's an innovative way to cultivate cells in bioreactors. Oh, this sounds sexy. To produce agricultural commodities. Uh, what makes the method revolutionary is its potential to bypass traditional agricultural challenges like weather dependency and high carbon emissions. Um, it starts with the coffee be bean, see the seedlings rather, and mm -hmm. researchers carefully select young, fully developed leaves from the seedlings. Uh, they underwent sterilization and were cut into small pieces to initiate callus formation, a mass of undifferentiated cells. These leaf pieces were then placed on a specialized medium to encourage uh, callus formation. And over two to four weeks, they were carefully monitored and transferred onto different media for establishment and media uh, maintenance. Uh, yeah, maintenance. Uh, they were transferred to a liquid 
um, and to create cell suspensions and uh, the cells grow in a more controlled uniform environment mm. for mass production the cell suspensions it does not are transferred sound appetizing i'm just wave, saying right now to wave bioreactors these no. bioreactors allowed for larger volumes and better control over no. growth conditions essential for industrial scale production anyway Ooh. um yeah it goes on here but uh, the final product was subject uh, subjected to rigorous sensory and chemical analysis this included comparisons with a uh, traditional coffee in terms of flavor aroma caffeine content other chemical compounds um, they probably did not compare it to coachella valley uh, yeah. while differences were noted the cell grown coffee showed promising similarities to, uh, to traditional coffee you know who's probably interested in this who starbucks really you think of like ma mass-produced coffee like that like the uh, cheaper we can make it but yep. if you make it cheap even if it's gross still nobody's going to want to buy well, it if you get to that baseline where you know the the lowest common denominator where people are happy enough mm. they'll hand over their money i don't know john starbucks Daly. isn't that good and people people are willing to pay a premium i want to show you this birdie we probably should have put this in the animal section but here here's this little birdie it's pretty blue and green gorgeous right this is the honey creeper what's interesting about the honey creeper is it is half male half female it's extremely rare it's only the second of its species ever observed with this condition the first recorded in more than a hundred years so there it is half male half female maybe that's why it's half blue on one side and half green on the other which one's mm -hmm. the boy color which one's the girl color i don't know is that why it's like looking back and forth it's like, yeah like who am i what am i yeah researchers have spotted this rare green honey creeper in colombia that is half female half male the bird's plumage is divided directly down the middle with blue feathers typical of males okay. on its right side and the emerald green of the females on mm. its left and again it's the second of the species ever recorded exhibiting this trait called bilateral gynadromorphism and the first in more than a hundred years. So interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. I just like the video. Looking around. Hello, little one. Yeah. There's some photos too. Very cool. Very pretty. I did, I, I did like the green. I think the green's really pretty. That's because you like the ladybird. <laughs> they say a lot of bird watchers can go their whole lives and never see a bilateral gynadromorph in any species of birds and this is in a species of rare bird so the bird people the bird watchers are very excited about this and the um, birds are also uh excited about finding nuts right we'll see oh yeah nuts. bring it on eating more nuts can help young adults avoid obesity and diabetes this is out of uh nashville want to lose weight just eat more nuts researchers at vanderbilt uh, university medical center have found that simply adding tree nuts to one's diet can lead to significant health improvements without the need to cut calories the study authors note that this is especially encouraging news for young adults uh, concerned about metabolic syndrome a cluster of conditions that raise the risk of heart disease and diabetes in this study 84 young adults between 22 and 36, mostly overweight or obese, participated in a controlled dietary experiment. They were divided into two groups. One cons consumed one ounce of various unsalted tree nuts twice daily, while the other ate a carbohydrate-rich snack of equal caloric value. The experiment went on for 16 weeks. The results were striking. Women who snacked on tree nuts showed a notable decrease in waist size 
and a tendency toward reduced visceral fat, the harmful fat stored around the ab abdominal organs. Men in that nut uh, group uh, experienced significant drops in blood insulin levels. Both genders showed improvements in lipid profiles, especially in triglycerides and um, TGHDL ratios, which are a critical marker of heart health. Um, when assessed, the effect of tree nuts on individual uh, scores, assigning one point for each metabolic syndrome factor, says study uh, uh, investigator, research professor at, um, they don't have the name here, that's weird, in a uh, media release, they say they observed 67% reduction in the, um, the metabolic syndrome scores in females and a 42% reduction in the score for males. So yeah, I think that's good. Um, probably good for everybody. If you're going to consume fats, which we have mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. try swapping some out for tree, um, tree nuts, and just be careful about like my roommate always gets bummed because I always buy the unsalted mm -hmm. at Costco and he's like, where's the salt? You don't need the salt. You don't no. need the salt. Lately, my husband's been ordering raw macadamia nuts. And mm. I find that if I eat a handful of them, like maybe 10, 11 macadamia nuts, it's really filling. Like I feel full. Right. And it's that's different than if you eat, you know, a piece of toast or two where right. you don't necessarily feel that full feeling in you. So maybe it's because you you eat less because you feel full sooner that your the waist size is going down. or And maybe it's also... You know, that it's good fat, not bad fat. I don't know. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I <laughs> love some ancient things. Ancient. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm on the wrong. I'm on the wrong thing. I don't know how I got ahead. so far away. Where am I? What am I doing? I don't even know where I am anymore. Uh, the canceled wedding. Yeah. Let's talk about this canceled wedding. This was an expensive one. I mean, in the Bay Area, you're going to put on a wedding reception it's going to be pretty pricey but this bride called off this wedding and had paid 15 grand for a reception she donated the whole thing to a nonprofit so that wow. they could host a party for children with special needs turning something horrible into something unforgettable that's the way to do it this happened in the south bay just a couple of days before the wedding was scheduled, this bride in the South Bay says she was forced to call off her wedding, facing an emotionally difficult situation and also a practical one. What do you do when you have everything booked, you have everything paid for, it's too late to cancel on all these vendors, what are you going to do, right? Too late to the close to the date to request a refund. So she decided to donate the entire event to San Jose-based nonprofit Parents Helping Parents. PHP is a group that supports families with children living with disabilities, and they had once provided help to the bride's family. And so she turned around and donated her reception to them. They say, I've never heard of anyone calling a nonprofit and saying, we want to donate a $15,000 party in two weeks to you. They said You've it never just seen anything doesn't like happen. This. But word spread among the, the clients. Soon they had 100 people RSVPing. They had the big party at the Gilroy Eagle Ridge Golf Club. They had the dinner. They had the dessert. They had the, uh, the DJ. They had the photo booth. There was even a fireworks display. Everything that would have happened for the wedding happened for this party for disabled kids and their family. I hope she attended. 
I hope so too. It doesn't say if she was there or not, but people that did attend called it a really special and rare treat and that they were delighted to have this party thrown for them. So, yeah, that's all. Yeah. I mean, she couldn't refund it, but that's so generous. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, well, it is time to take a break. Um, what? We'll, yeah, we'll take a Are break. Are you kidding me? Yeah. God, this show, I'm telling you, I have so much fun and it just whips right by. Well, then if we hurry up through this break, we'll come back and we'll do some more. How about we'll that? do it. We'll do it right now. Here. It's the after, the after party. party. It's live. Hey, everybody. It's your friend Satan. Love me or hate me, the after party live is underwritten by our audience. And without you, this show wouldn't be possible. If you can contribute 10, 15, $20, $666, it would keep this party very, very hot and heavy. Any dollar amount is appreciated and it all adds up, isn't that the truth? The PayPal link can be found in the About section of the YouTube channel or at the bottom of the show description. I know what you're thinking, why should I be tempted by the devil, but... Come on, guys, it's not like I'm asking you for your soul. <laughs> a party where you don't even have to leave the house. You could be naked for all we care. The After Party, live. Can you just keep doing those over and over and over again? I'm running out of characters, though, so we, we need to create some new characters. I really, really love them. They're so funny. Doug, thank you for the $5 super sticker. Doug Koch, everybody. Thank you, Doug yes, and, and thank Wes. thank you, Wes. So, 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 so grateful. And thank you to ongoing contributors, Jane O and Rachel C. You guys, thank you so much. Yeah. Really appreciate your help. With Contributions the show. are down a little bit right now. So, oh, no. Um, we, you know, it's tough. It's tough times. It's, tough yeah, times. tough times yeah. all over, baby. Tough we are times the little all show over. that could. Uh, every dollar goes a long way for our small budget. So um, if you haven't contributed and you're thinking about it, even just five bucks a month, if everybody watching the show gave five bucks, we'd be done with this fundraiser. Uh, and if you could click the like button and the subscribe button while we're thinking about it, we'd appreciate that too. Yes. Yeah. Back so do you want to uh, back to the back stories. into stories, or do you want to go to Travel Tuesday? Because I don't want to not be able to do our oh, we, travel. We got we we've got time. We have time. Why don't, why don't right. we go to we we love uh, mysterious ancient things, right? Oh, ancient Chinese secret. Yes. Uh, let's go back. <laughs> let's go back to this story. Um, this is out of Vice. Um, pretty cool. An ancient inscribed brick. Uh, contains evidence of mysterious magnetic anomaly, according to scientists. What? Scientists analyzing ancient Mes Mesopotamian bricks have discovered traces of the Levantine Iron Age geomagnetic anomaly that shed light on its strength. New research, <laughs> New research on ancient Mesopotamia has uncovered evidence of an ancient magnetic phenomenon providing a way to delve deeper into one of the most fascinating periods in human history. Scientists have analyzed these ancient bricks and revealed how dramatic an ancient spike in Earth's magnetic field some 3,000 years ago truly was. The study was published by our friends, the study people, in the Proceedings of the National uh, Academy of Sciences. It relied on archaeomagnetic techniques or extracting information about the strength and direction of the Earth's magnetic field from ancient objects. How the hell do they do that? It basically mm. investigates the magnetic memory of the materials, right? Um, and items like bricks or pottery were often made with grains of magnetic rock when heated and then cooled, keep a signature of the geomagnetic conditions of that time. Isn't that kind of cool? Fascinating. Uh, at, at very high temperatures, the objects are memoryless, but at the temperature, as the temperature drops, it picks up the memory of the Earth's magnetic w field that it was sitting in at the time. 
In this study, researchers used ancient bricks from Mesopotamia, which overlaps modern-day Iraq, containing iron oxide to investigate field strength by systematically removing the ancient magnetic signature from small fragments of the bricks through heating and cooling, then reheating the bricks and replacing the magnetic field with one produced in the lab. They could get a ratio between the object's magnetic charge in the past and under laboratory conditions. This told researchers that these bricks were fired at a time when the Earth's magnetic field was more than one and a half times what it is today during a period known as the Levantine Iron Age geomagnetic anomaly. Hmm. That's a mouthful. The anomaly was first discovered in 2009 by members of the same team in the nearby region using similar methods, but on layers of rock material. Um, so that's, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Humongous thank you to Calvin Wong, who pops in with a 5150 wow. and a hello that's to Satan. Yep. Hello, Calvin Wong. You're <laughs> always one of my favorites. Thank you very much, and I love the color. You know, and, I love, and I love the 5150 as well. Calvin, huge yes. thank you. They're so generous. Really, really nice of you. Deborah B popping in for $10. Since Satan commanded, she said. Oh, thank you, Deborah B. I appreciate that. And then Ren popping in for $6.66. Oh, that's cool. I like I see what you did there. I like it. I see what you did there. Shout out Happy to Happy holidays, Beelzebub, she writes. Well, Satan may be sticking around for longer. Yeah. Yeah, Satan brings, the, Satan brings the, the the party. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate that. To uh, to Ren, to Deborah, and to Calvin. Really generous and kind. Thank you for helping us with the show. Uh, wedding ring donation. You know, you walk by sometimes the red kettle and drop in a couple bucks, but somebody else dropped in the wedding rings. Mm-hmm. Wow. Outside of a market in Waltham, Massachusetts, the person that was holding the red kettle found a wedding band, an engagement ring, and a note. It said, this ring is being given in love for a second time. Like the first time, I hope that this ring will bring joy and will make a difference. Now, it wasn't a huge ring. It's only valued at $1,500, but that's really a lot. I mean, that's a lot to put in a red kettle. And the value will be directed uh, toward helping families and others in need in that area this holiday season. Kind of risky dropping it. Like, you know, the person who opened it could have just taken it. Well, yeah, but that's not why they're out there waving the kettle, right? I mean, they're out there to do a good deed. I, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I mean, guess I think they're being paid. They're being paid, aren't they? Are they? I just thought it was a volunteer Army, right? No, because Salvation Army like creates jobs for people with problems oh. with drinking. The problem is I don't donate to those red kettles because they're anti-LGBTQ. Yeah, I'm I know sure it's anti, true. They're yeah. religious nuts. So I don't, right. I don't. I'll find another charity. Thank you very much. Um, the tradition, though, of donating wedding rings through the Salvation Army kettle dates back to at least 2014 when a widow's donation of her wedding ring and diamond engagement rings outside of Boston's North Station touched off a spree of jewelry donations across oh, the wow. region. People have also put rare coins in the kettle. This year, the Salvation Army is hoping to raise $2.5 million in Massachusetts through their Red Kettle campaign, but they won't be getting a dime from the after-party live Satan. 
You're on the naughty list. Uh, <laughs> Red set. Wait, wait, before you go on. Harry, a little something from Santa. You made the list. How can you tell that Santa is real? You can always sense his presence. Get it? Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Harry. $5 from Harry. Thank you. And Karen with a $20 uh, donation contribution. Wow. Mahalo, she writes. Mahalo Thank to you, you. Karen, Thank and aloha. You, Karen. Thank you for your your aloha that you've given to us today and just every day being here. Really, you've really given thank us you. the strength to continue on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This, this next story is about obesity. Severe obesity is increasing among young American children, according Uh-oh. to a new study. No, our new study adds evidence that severe obesity is becoming more common. Uh, this is in the U.S. specifically. There was some hope that children in a government food program might be bucking a trend in obesity rates. Earlier research found rates were dropping a little about a decade ago for those kids. But an update released on, in uh, this was Monday in the journal Pediatrics shows that the rate bounced back up a, a bit by 2020. Uh-oh. The increase echoes other national data, which suggests around two and a half percent of all preschool age children were severely obese during the same what? period. That's what percentage? Two and a half percent. But still, oh, that's, yeah. you know over a huge population that's a lot of a lot of kids yeah, it is. we were doing so well and, and now we see an upward trend and one of the authors we were dismayed at these findings the study looked at children ages two to four and it's really like two to four you're really like setting your kid up for failure right it's gonna yeah. be so hard and you're gonna have so many medical problems it's just gonna pile up right um this is uh children that were enrolled in the women infants and children program otherwise known as WIC, yeah. which provides healthy healthy foods ironically and other services to preschool-aged children in low-income families. The children were weighed and measured. Uh, the research found that two and a half or two point one percent of the kids in the program were severely obese in 2010. Six years later, the rate had dipped one point eight percent, but by 2020, it was two percent. This translates to about thirty-three thousand of more than one point six million kids in the program. Yeah, thirty-three thousand severely obese kids aged two to four in the so awful i remember oh. one time when i w- was at the pediatrician's office and it was for a well baby check yeah. and the pediatrician asked me what do you put in the bottle mm-hmm. and i said well what do you mean what do i put in the bottle either breast milk right i think right. at the time i was transitioning from breast milk to cow's milk or whatever right. i said milk she said okay and i said what do you think i'm gonna put in there she said Sunny well D. you think- no, seriously. She said, you'd be surprised, Kim. She said, some people put orange juice in the bottle, Kool-Aid in the bottle, Mountain Dew in the bottle, Pepsi in the bottle. That This is being fed to toddlers. And she goes, so I have to ask because I need to check and I need to make sure that I educate people as I go along through the day. So well, I mean, new, this news gets worse. Uh, Significant increases were seen in 20 states with the highest rate in... California. Oh no. 2.8%. We can do better um, people. There were also were notable rises in some racial and ethnic groups. The highest about 2.8% was in Hispanic kids. Mm-hmm. Experts say severe obesity at an early age is nearly irreversible and is strongly associated with chronic health problems and an early death. So there you go. Some uh, there's another Debbie Downer story for today. Oh, sad. Okay, let's go for science. How about this? How about some reindeer science? That's right. Ooh. Reindeer can see UV light. And now scientists think they might actually know why. Part of this is to survive in snowy Arctic winters. So reindeer 
have evolved unique visual systems that are, this is interesting, their eyes change color to help adjust to big swings in sunlight between the Arctic and sometimes summer their nose and the winter. Well. Sometimes their nose changes color, but their eyes changes color because the sun, depending on how strong the sun is. Um, and also it may help them forage and see things to, you know, look for food. But there's a study published this month in the journal Eye Perception, I like the letter I perception. It mm -hmm. found the reindeer eyes may have evolved to see light in ultraviolet spectrum to help them find their favorite food in a desolate type of setting. Really, they mostly eat um, reindeer moss, but it's not a moss. It's kind of an algae fungus. It's lichen was what it is. It mm. forms thick and crunchy blankets on the ground across the earth in the northern latitudes. Hey, and it kids, helps you want crunchy or smooth? Crunchy, please. <laughs> helps them play an important role in the ecosystem as a food source. So in the study, the team worked in the Cairngorms Mountains in the Scottish Highlands, which is home to Britain's only reindeer herd. The reindeer there were hunted to extinction, but reintroduced from Scandinavia in the 50s. So this mountain range is home to about 1,500 species of lichen. The reindeer only rely on them uh, in the winter months. One of the traits of this reindeer is their their reliance on this one type of lichen. And they say it's really unusual for an animal to subsist so heavily on lichens, let alone a large animal like this. When it's up against the snow, the white lichen is invisible to the human eye. But, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, the, if it's under UV, they use spectral data from the lichen and light fil filters that were made to mimic reindeer vision. And they found then that the plants may look like dark patches against a bright landscape to these reindeer. They stand out like Dalmatian spots and they're easier for the reindeer to locate. Now available in reindeer vision. Isn't that cool? So they that's why beasts. their eyes, they are magic. They're beautiful creatures. Speaking of magic, we have time for one quick Madonna story. Okay, well, remember when Madonna was recently hospitalized? She was really, really sick. Right. Now right. we're finding exactly uh, how sick she was. She was in a, a chemically induced coma for 48 oh. hours while she was hospitalized for this bacterial infection. She's sharing some more details. She's thanking a friend for saving her life after she passed out. Um, she was at the... Um, she was at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn as part of her Celebration World Tour. And she was talking about this because over the summer, she had to postpone this tour as she was admitted to the ICU for treatment of an infection. She said, I was in an induced coma for 48 hours. This was before she thanked her Kabbalah teacher who was at her side when she was in the hospital. The only voice I heard was his. I heard him say, squeeze my hand. When she said, I first became conscious, I saw my six incredible children sitting around me. Uh, by the way, I almost had to die to get all my kids in one room. But she opened up about what happened to her. She thanked her friend, Siobhan, who she said saved her life after she passed out, dragged her to the hospital. She said she passed out on her bathroom floor. And the next thing she knew, she woke up in the ICU. This was back in June. Um... So she said she felt guilty over the postponement of her tour. But yeah, she she had to be in a coma while they treated her for this. This was a rough one. Listen to your body. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you feel that bad, you may have an infection. Um, 
we had a coworker who refused to go to the hospital and uh, finally pushed her to go. And the doctor said, yeah, had you not come in, um, you would have died from the infection. She had like a red line going up her leg. And she, like, if you have a red line, that means that... I don't the, even know who you're talking about right now. A deadly infection is going up your leg. Well, I'm not going to out her, but... Right. Um, well, you have to tell me later. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then a follow-up, <laughs> an infection... Like in her jaw, like her jaw was bothering Ooh. her and they went in, it was an infection of her jaw. Um, yeah. So if you feel like in, like pain like that, mystery pain, go get it checked out. What's the worst? Yikes. Like, like, don't be stupid. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, maybe you have to pay a copay or whatever. Maybe you feel a little foolish, but it's like you're going to be happy that when you catch something early and you don't have to go through all the pain. Um, that being said, it is time. It is time for Travel Tuesday. Tuesday. Travel Tuesday. Ready for some travel stories, Kim? Yes, I do. Let's I want some it. travel stories. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. I want to know about what the changes at the airport. How are we going to trust people to search themselves? Are you ready? Oh, I'm still here. <laughs> are you ready? Are you ready to groan? TSA self-screening. What? That's right. I'm going to pat down myself? TSA self-screening is the next big step for airport security. In January, select passengers at Harry Reid International Airport, oh, in Vegas, even better, <laughs> will begin testing a new self-service screening system from the TSA. The setup will resemble a supermarket self-checkout. And we know those are working out so well. <clears throat> With travelers scanning their identification and carry-on bags instead of arugula and toilet paper, the ultimate goal... Of this is an all uh, all in one stop, according to professor of aviation and aerospace Jeffrey C. Price at University of Denver. You go in and you show your ID. It scans you. It scans your bags. You leave your little kiosk and off you go on the plane. An article about self service screening published uh, on the Department of Homeland Security's website said the pilot program will start with Las Vegas next month. TSA declined to share specifics about the system, and a representative for the Department of Homeland Security did not respond to a comment. According to the article, passengers with pre-check will assume several responsibilities typically handled by TSA officers, such as checking, checking their IDs, and inspecting their bags for prohibited items. Oh, this sounds great. So you just need somebody who's like a, like a, I don't know, like a terrorist hacker, right? To try to like bypass the system somehow. Mm -hmm. just, just, no, 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 no. no this no. seems like a poorly thought out plan. Let's I, I just go. Spend more money. Let's travel, though. Why don't we? That sounds better. Let's hop on a train and head to Europe because we have a list of eight of Europe's best winter train journeys. Yes, we do. The first one is the Bernina Express from Chur, Switzerland to Toronto, Italy. Of course, we know it's listed as a UNESCO World Heritage Site since 2008. The Bernina Line is one of the highest railways in the Alps, promising four hours of panoramic views from its glass-domed carriages. You'll see frozen lakes, rivers crashing down canyons, and forests filled with heavy snow. How cool is that? That's the Bernina mm -hmm. Express. The Bergen Line from Oslo to uh, Bergen, Norway is another one of these this is I've, really I've done fun this one. have you this, yeah, this is cool um it, it, apparently it's a seven hour journey you go behind these terraced homes you get a glimpse into what norwegians are doing uh you see people opening their curtains and puttering around did, their kitchens I, I, I didn't see any of that oh 
is kind of a glimpse into their life. And then they go um, to the Tier Fjorden, uh, to some different towns. And yeah, I did. Lizards. I stopped to the halfway mark. I don't know if they mentioned Flom. Um, I stopped in Flom. And, and this is June, and there was mm -hmm. seven feet of snow. It, I felt like I was at the North Pole. I was not dressed for snow. Uh, it was very bizarre. And then I took, it's one of the steepest trains in the world. And you go down, and it takes you down to the fjord. Ooh. And I saw this fjord. I'm telling you, it looked fake. It's so beautiful. Wow. The blues are so blue. The sky, the water. Um, and when you're in a fjord, it has that like um, glacier melt. So there's like a lot of minerals in the water. So it's kind of like a steel blue, right? It doesn't, it's not clear. Um, and it's, it just looked like artificial. It, it looked like it was, uh, you know, um, like, um, like a digital effect. What right? an incredible experience. Very beautiful. I recommend the it. Third is the Dacia, Vienna, Austria to Bucharest, Romania. That's so pretty. It takes you on an epic journey through Eastern Europe. They say it's wise to eat before you board because there's not very much food available on the train. Um, most people commute and they go to sleep early, duh, but the duh. views are what this one is all about, that um, it rolls through the heart of Transylvania, views to the snow-topped Carpathian Mountains, uh, takes you along the Olt River through tunnels obscured by woods hung with daggers of ice. Oh, fun. Um, here's another one that's good on the list. This is Santa Claus Express, Helsinki to Rovaniemi, Finland. There you mm -hmm. go. That's what we're looking at here. Uh, this is the spirit of Christmas, they say, really coming home in this train trip. The, they say it's like the Santa Claus Express, a bright green double-decker train, sleeper service, seven nights a week, uh, Helsinki, 500 miles to Finnish Lapland, the home of Father Christmas. Ooh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. They have um, The train is popular with Finns lugging snowboards and ski gear. And yeah, that's supposed to be a fun one. The Harz Narrow Gauge Railway from Werning Road to Brocken, Germany. Pictures are beautiful. This is a one for people who really love trains, loves yeah, engines, yeah. themes, and whistles. It's a rail. This Brocken Railway is a branch of Germany's narrow gauge network that runs around the Harz Mountains. Now that's a fun one. The West Highland Line from Glasgow to Maleg, Scotland. So let's go five and a half hours. You leave Glasgow, you go uh, along the edge of the river Clyde before it veers Northwest passing lock after lock gleaming like glass in the low winter sun. I'm there. Stockholm, Sweden to Narvik, Norway, also on the list. Oh, wow. How picturesque is that? Incredible. Uh, they say this is a sense of adventure that, Sometimes they've got people in bed socks and dogs laying in the aisles. This is kind of, you know, everybody feels like they're right at home. They have a Living dining in one of those car. homes uh, on the stilts, that would be an adventure. Oh, I'm telling you. Another one on the list, the SJ Euro Night from Berlin to Stockholm. So beautiful. This one um, heads west through the city of Berlin and it follows the bends of the frosted river spree before the countryside of the lower Saxony flattens out and opens up to fields covered in snow. Yeah, that there train's got to go the long way. So that's got to go all the way from island to island, um, uh, right, going north um, mm -hmm. through Denmark. 
Beautiful. Those are the best seven European train trips. There you go. Don't you feel like you just went on a little vacation with me? Yeah, very cool. Kind of? Yeah. Very, very pretty. Um, This next one is about before you you get on that flight, after the TSA, uh, (laughs) but before you get on the flight, this article, I love the headline (laughs) in the Washington Post. Why do gate lice line up early for a flight? So that's people who line up right before their boarding group. Sure, because they want to be the first. They want to be right at the gate, right when they're done. The psychologists explain here, and the decision of when to get in line to board an airplane can be a contentious one, but it shouldn't be. While gate agents will give clear boarding group specific directions, there will remain a strong contingent of passengers who either get in line before they're called or wait in their seats until it's last to board. While the latter type of traveler often hangs back to avoid standing in line altogether, the motives driving the former group can be harder to place. Airline employees even have a nickname for these type of flyers, gate lice. An (laughs) illustrated uh, encyclopedia of people at the airport. Oh, that's a link to something. Sorry. A former gate agent (laughs) and current corporate communications manager for Delta speculated excitement as a possible cause. If you're at the airport, you're ready to get where you want to go. So you're just antsy and anticipating the travel experience. For me, as a traveler, even if I know I'm going to be sitting on a plane, especially for longer flights, I like standing. But while Castaneda, this is the gate agent, said it's nice to stretch your legs, standing in line er too early means extra bumps in the boarding process. Passengers getting in line too early can lead to congested uh, airport walkways, longer wait times for boarding groups who have already been called. If if you've ever wondered why people are lining up early, there is a psychological perspective to the madness. Um, Psychology experts pointed to two potential explanations for why passengers get in line early. Conformity and competition. People use other people as sources of information, both about what is the right thing to do and about what everyone else is doing. Your conspiracy theory, uh, they keep putting links in the middle of the text, that's annoying. Both of these things are happening at an airport when travelers get in line early. The first person who stands up gives the others information about how they can they can and should behave, which leads to more people standing up to join them, right? Thus convincing mm-hmm. more people to join in a constant information feedback loop. People will do uh, any weird thing if they think that's the way to behave, right? When you see people lining up, getting ready, it makes you feel like there's a benefit to do that. And increasingly, airline policy is such that there can be a real tangible benefit to lining up early. Flights are often full or even overbooked, uh, which can lead to a sense of pressure among travelers to claim their space early. Airlines forcing flyers to gate check passengers' carry-ons because of full overhead bins, for example, means that being the last aboard when group six is called rather than the first aboard when uh, with group seven can be the difference between keeping your carry-on and not. And well, when it's true. I mean, it's when someone stands up and starts, they, they've now formed a line. And right. then you feel like, well, I'm here, so I might as well get my place in line. Otherwise, I'm going to be the last one on, right? Right, especially if you have like a yeah. connecting flight and you don't mm-hmm. want your carry-on to be checked. Um, Heather and- says, for me, I'm antsy to get on the plane ASAP, so I have time to scrub down my seat area before neighboring passengers sit down and get in the way of my process. Yeah, yeah. so... Um, they uh, said, adding that because of the uncertainty, the consequences of not acting like there's a competition when there is can feel greater than the consequence of acting like there's competition when there isn't. In the mm-hmm. former case, you might miss your flight and miss your connection at the other end. And in, and in the case of the latter, you might have stood up for a few minutes for no good reason. Yeah. I think a lot of it is just um, the, the anxiety, mm-hmm. you know, the anxiety of like missing out. So it's like you want to get the best deal possible. Right. You want to, you want the best scenario possible to work out. Wes bucking the trend says, I always want to be last. I want to walk on. I want to sit down and hopefully we take off shortly. If there's any room for my carry on, I don't care. Right. He just wants to get on and spend the least amount of time there as possible. 
Interesting. Uh, Calvin says last one's rotten egg. Yep. <laughs> very true. Uh, okay. So, um, you know, when you get on a plane and the flight attendant is always, you know, they're, they're always so nice. They stand at the doorway and they say, hi, welcome aboard. You know, your seat is this way or right. welcome. They just kind of motion down and you're like, oh, that's nice. They stand there and they greet you. Why do they do that? Why? Well, now we they, know. They don't think you can read your boarding pass? No, that's not why. Oh. They want to make sure you're not drunk. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And more. Apparently. Oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently they're looking you up and down. When you're walking toward them on the gangplank, before, as you step on the plane, they are looking at your whole body. They're saying what they're looking for, first of all, is that if you are able to be one of their ABPs, that's an able-bodied person mm -hmm. in an emergency, can you assist in an evacuation They're or looking an emergency? for the big buff tall guys? They're looking for an ABP. <laughs> They're looking for military personnel, pilots, nurses, doctors, police, firefighters. They're looking for people that they think can help them in an emergency. That's number one. Also, they're looking to see how many bags people are carrying. They have to be conscious of what kind of bags they're carrying. If someone's bringing in a cooler, they want to know what's in that cooler. Um, they said, then there's the question of inebriation. Flight attendants will be able to tell if you're too tipsy to board by checking in on you with a quick hello at the beginning when you first walk in. Um, they say other suspicious behavior can be eyed at the door too. So... Um, when you look at them and think they're just being friendly, no, they're the, um, they call them the Boeing bouncers. So if you walk up and you don't meet the, you know, the, the sniff test or you look a little the squirrely, test. Hello. you're going to be like, no, thanks. Yeah. Like if you smell like a beer factory, a booze factory, you're probably not going to stay on that plane. Audience. So, mm -hmm. Well, that's the end. That's the end of a Tuesday edition of the After Party. Oh, I was having so much fun. You're going to well, kick me out of the party already? The doors are closing? It's Get that the hell out? Time. Is that what you're yeah, saying? But you can come back tomorrow <laughs> at 1.05 Pacific. I will come and back tomorrow. I like We have a lot of people party. to thank. Let's thank, let's thank all these people. Wes. Doug. Doug Koch for $5. Thank you. Calvin. Shout out to Sweden. Deborah. Thank you, Deborah. Ren. Deborah, thank, thank you. you thank you, Ren. Uh, Harry, Karen, Cooper, uh, our ongoing contributor, Jane O, and our yeah. on ongoing contributor, Rachel C. Uh, thank you so much for making the show possibility. Without these contributions, it wouldn't work at all. So, we have great, great, great stories planned for tomorrow already. We are so excited to uh, to do another show tomorrow. We hope you'll join us. Please click the like button. Please click the subscribe button. Thank you for all the ways you help us with the show, whether it's financial, whether it's spending this hour with us. We appreciate it. So join us again tomorrow on the After Party Live and have a great afternoon, everybody. Bye, John Daly. Bye, Kim, right? Bye, yeah. Kim. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Who are you? <laughs> Who's that girl? I don't I'm know. New, I'm new here. Bye-bye. Whatever. <laughs> Bye. Bye.